Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Last week, we did not go over 1 Corinthians as it was Mother's Day. But now we're picking up where we left off. We had finished 1 Corinthians 10. And now we're going to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In 1 Corinthians 10, we learn and we know that, that Paul is teaching the church. And he has a consistent theme here throughout you know, the last chapter of the glory of God. It has to be for the glory of God. Whatever you do, it's for the glory of God. And that consistent theme of the glory of God, the goal is the glory of God, the purpose is the glory of God. We want to take that theme and bring it over to chapter 11 because it's still about the glory of God. That is still the purpose, that is still the objective, the glory of God. Remember that please, the glory of God. And today we're going to talk about glory that begins in the home and continues in the church. Glory for God that begins in the home and continues in the church. The glory of God. Why the glory of God? Why is it that we're learning the glory of God? Because we want to see God be magnified and glorified and see as many people as we possibly can come to know Jesus. Amen. And let's read in 1 Corinthians 10 verses here 31 to 33 so that we remind ourselves what we left off on. And it says this, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, whatever you do, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. So what is Paul teaching us here in chapter 10? That he's living a life of self-denial. He's living a life of self-denial so that he can reach other people and that they may be saved. He said, the things that I do, I don't do them for my own profit. I don't do them for the profit of self. In fact, I'm living a life of self-denial so that more people can be saved. I'm willing to surrender. I'm willing to be humble. I'm willing to sacrifice so that others can be saved. You know what this teaching teaches us? That the self-seeking life, the self-seeking life takes very few people to heaven, almost none, if not any. The self-seeking life. It takes no people to heaven. It, it addresses no issue of salvation. The self-seeking life takes none to heaven. But the self-denying life, the self-denying life, the self-denying life that seeks the glory of God takes many people to heaven. What life are you choosing to live today? The self-seeking life that takes none to heaven or the self-denying now life that takes everyone and most now to heaven? Because when it comes to heaven, you want to walk around heaven forever. You want to walk around heaven forever knowing that it was completely worth it. You want to go to heaven and know this was completely worth it. The life that I lived to see all these people here, absolutely it was worth it. And a life that brings glory to God is a life that is all about pure worship. And pure worship is purely centered on God receiving the glory. And the best way of God receiving the glory in worship, I'll tell you this. This is going to open up what we're going to talk about today. It's through submission and reverence and obedience. The best form of worship, the best form of worship is not even in music. <laughs> The best form of worship is in obedience. 
A lot of times we think that worship sounds good. Worship also looks good. <laughs> worship looks good. It's a life lived after God. Worship should be holy, a life lived for holiness. You see? And that's exactly what we're going to learn today, that worship and praising God is all about submission to His will, reverence, and holiness. Now in chapter 11, verse 1, it says this, Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I deliver them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, that the head of every woman is man, and that the head of Christ is God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you because it's alive. We thank you because it's living and it's powerful. And we ask, Lord, right now that you would teach us that pure worship is purely centered on you receiving the glory. We, we ask, Lord, that you would teach us that worship not only sounds good, worship also looks good. And that it, it is always best demonstrated in obedience, in submission. In Jesus' name, together the church would say, Amen. Now it says here, now after talking about the self-denying life, that Paul comes in here in 1 Corinthians 11 with a very strong now confirmation. And he says this, imitate me just as I imitate Christ. Have you ever felt like you've told somebody, I want you to follow me as I now travel the path down to this destination? Well, he's going to tell us this. Christ, number one, is the destination. It's not Paul that he's concerned about. It's not his own following that he wants to grow or his own followers that he wants to have. It seems that today in our social media culture and the media culture that we live in, it's about how many followers you have. Well, Paul is saying this. It's not about someone's following me, but it's about following Christ. But when he says imitate me, what does he mean? What does that word imitate mean? Well, the word imitate means to mimic as an actor, to portray or to mimic now. But what is he asking you to mimic? What is he asking you to follow? What does he want you to imitate? If somebody tells you, I want you to imitate me, well, they better have a really good reason on what they want you to imitate of them. Well, Paul here wants us to imitate the self-denial for the salvation of others. You see the life that I'm living in self-denial, Paul is saying? Imitate that. Because as you imitate that, you're leading other people to Jesus. And if we imitate that, guess what? More people will be pointed over to Jesus. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. You see, this is the faith here that we're learning of a spiritual guide that Paul is becoming as an example for us to follow. An example for us to follow that spiritual God. Imitate me so that many people would come to know Jesus as they imitate Christ. Now in 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 and 9, it says this, Paul tells the church, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. It says, follow us, for we are not disorderly among you. Not because we don't have authority, but we make ourselves an example on how you should follow us. Paul lived a life that he made an example of himself, how other people should live and follow. And as they followed that example, they were coming closer to Jesus. He said, I made myself an example so that you can follow. 
In Hebrews 13, 7, it says, Remember those who rule over you, or your leaders, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow. Here we go. Considering the outcome of their conduct. When you look at somebody's life and you consider the outcome of their conduct, consider that and then follow your leaders. Follow your leadership. And then he tells us in 3, 3 John 1.11, the Apostle John now, he tells us who not to follow. <laughs> you see, it's important who to follow, but it's also important to know who not to follow. Just because somebody wants you to follow them, just because other people are following them, that doesn't mean that you ought to follow them as well. And he says here in 3 John 1.11, Beloved, do not imitate, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, and he who does evil has not seen God. Do not imitate what is evil. I'm going to ask you today, what kind of example are you following today? What kind of example are you following today? Because everyone is following somebody, and everyone is leading somebody. Everyone is following somebody, and everybody is leading somebody else. If you think about it, you are following the example that somebody set for you. But who is that example that you are following? And what kind of example are you leading so that other people can also follow as well? If you're a parent, is the outcome, is the conduct of the outcome of what you are behaving yourself, does that, is that something you want your children to follow? At work, the way you talk, the way you conduct yourself, the way you behave. Is that an example that you want others to follow? What is the main goal that others would be saved? And it takes for you and for me to be free. Free from the selfless, selfish life. Free from the sin. Free from the bondage so that we can lead other people to freedom as well. You can't, leave, you can't lead anyone to freedom, your family, your wife, your kids, anyone. You cannot lead them to freedom in Christ if you are not living that life in freedom yourself. It takes free people to free people. <laughs> it takes you to be free in the Lord so that you can free other people and lead them. What kind of example are we leading others so that they can follow Christ? You know, essentially here what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 11, he's saying, follow me. As you see me following Christ. Follow me as you see me following Christ. Can you honestly say that today? Hey, would you follow me today as you see me following Christ? Now he's saying, follow me as you see me following Christ. Verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things. And keep the traditions just as I have delivered them to you. In 1 Corinthians, we've already noted that Paul has exhorted and corrected the church many times. Every single time that they had messed up, that they were wrong or they were erring, they were living in sin or some type of lifestyle that didn't honor God, he would correct them, he would exhort, and he would rebuke. But here before he exhorts again, he encourages. And I want you to pay attention to that order. Because maybe God's put it in your heart to go and exhort and, and maybe encourage someone but it, or, or maybe correct someone in whatever state it would be. But hear what Paul does here. Now I praise you. What does he offer before exhortation? He offers encouragement. If you want to go in and exhort someone and correct them and build them up for their own good, provide the encouragement first. Encourage them. I praise you, brethren. He's about to exhort them right now from the following verses. But first, he shows an appreciation for them before an exhortation. 
Show them you appreciate before you exhort. And he says, now I praise you, brethren. Now he's praising them even though they had failed in some areas in the past. Isn't that amazing? That Paul is teaching as the example of leadership. He starts to praise the church of Corinth even though they had failed in areas of the past. Even though they were a work in progress, he still praised them before he he exhorted them. He still appreciated them. He still was very grateful for them. Well, let's read verse 2. I praise you, brethren, or the church, even though they failed in other areas, that you remember me in all things, that you keep me in your thoughts. Thank you, church of Corinth, that you remember your pastor, Paul the Apostle, he's saying here. Thank you because you keep me at at top of mind and, and that you remember me in all things. Not only that, but that you keep the teachings just as I have delivered them to you. Thank you for remembering me and I praise you also for following the teachings that I delivered to you and there is discipleship here taking place. Thank you for keeping those traditions. Thank you for keeping those teachings that I've been giving you. And he's going to tell them now, he's going to exhort him in those teachings. He's going to tell the church of Corinth, I want to exhort you now, church of Corinth, in the teachings that I've been telling you. And today he's going to talk about the leadership, the authority. The the authority in women and men in the home and in the church. Because this is the design of worship in the house of God. And this is the design of worship in your house as well. I want you to know that. This, what we're going to talk about right now, has nothing to do with, with so much with rights or equality. It has more to do with created for roles and responsibilities. And it's important that we know that. Because number one, you weren't created by accident. You weren't, the way you were created wasn't an accident. And the order in where you were created, it wasn't an accident either. I want you to remember that. The Lord created you distinctively for a certain role and a certain responsibility. And the order in which created male and female, it wasn't by accident as well. We're going to see that there's eternal principles here that we must respect when it comes to the authority and the leadership that God has ordained eternally. And this is amazing here because it's so relevant to today. Because even today, people don't respect authority. More and more, you see people challenging authority. There used to be that our country, our nation, feared God. We, we were one nation under God. Now we, don't, we can't even use that term in our Pledge of Allegiance. We no longer fear God. We no longer respect God. We no longer respect the authority of God. And then it went to the government. No longer people fear the government now. They don't longer fear teachers in the school system as they used to. People used to look at teachers and, and respect the authority of a teacher in a classroom. They no longer respect that authority in the classroom. Or what about employers? Was there a time before where people respected their employer? And not any longer. They don't respect employers anymore. Or what about the police? (laughs) There was a time where we looked at the police as something honorable. A man or a woman, a servant of God, who wore that badge in honor and diligence, right? Serving our communities and no longer do we see them that way. What about church leaders? Do people respect the authority that God has ordained? And the changes that have happened as we don't respect authority have affected also our culture and our environment in a negative way. In a negative way, look at the entertainment now industry. Look at society. 
Because we don't fear God, because we don't fear authority, because we don't respect authority, guess what happens now? Now it affects our entire culture. You see people now and, and children being raised up in homes, talking bad to their parents all the time. You know, saying all kinds of stuff to their parents and, and cussing them out in public. And you say, well, what has happened here? Where is the shift when we, have, when we used to respect authority? We no longer respect authority. But we have to remember to respect the authority that God has ordained. And we're going to talk about the beauty and the glory in the Christian home. And I, and I pray that you would really receive this because if you want to be a, a, a home with a biblical worldview, then this, this should matter to you. If you're married or you're single, man and woman, doesn't matter what age or what stage in life, this matters to you. It's been said before, I think Alan Redpath said it best when he said, one thing that places this nation in great peril or danger is the breakdown of its homes, even Christian homes, and the collapse of the sanctity of marriage. You know what happens when the home is not in order? It affects our nation in great measure. What does Satan want to do today? You want to, you want to know what he wants to do? He wants to, number one, he wants to corrupt authority. He wants to corrupt the authority of your house. He wants to corrupt the authority of the nation, of the world around us in society. Satan wants to corrupt authority, number one. And number two, he wants you to reject authority. Whatever it is that God has placed, the authority that the Lord has placed, he wants to corrupt it and he wants you to reject it. And you know what that means when you are rejecting an, an, uh, an authority that the Lord has instituted? It's called rebellion. It's called rebellion. That's what it's called. And the Bible tells us in 1 Samuel 5.23, when Samuel the prophet told, now Saul, uh, it's here the king, he told them, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. When God looks at rebellion, He looks at it as, as if it, it's as bad as witchcraft, and stubbornness is as in iniquity and idolatry. See, when we are not submitted to authority, it is as bad as rebellion in the eyes of the Lord. It is as bad as witchcraft. But now let's see these principles that remain in verse 3. And remember the purpose between the church, the home, and the world, what God has instituted. And he says this in verse 3. But I want you to know. What does he want you to know? He wants you to know something here. But I want you to know the structure designed by God. The structure that glorifies God. The divine order, the authority that God has placed. In essence, verse 3, if you want to call it this, it is God's chain of command. <laughs> it is God's chain of command. Verse 3, and it says this. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of every woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Now, when he uses these words, now we have to really understand what he means. When he says head, he's talking about authority. He's talking about headship. He's talking about leadership, right? And he starts off by saying the head or the authority of man is Christ. We're all good with that. We know that the head of, every, of man, it is Christ. The head or the authority of woman is man. That's where we have a problem sometimes. The head of authority is man. And the head of Christ, here, listen up. There's three relationships here. There's not only one. I think for the men, they got so happy when they heard that second one. This is the message I've been wanting to hear, I want my wife to hear. Well, I'm going to back you guys up, ladies, and just give me a minute, you know. And the head of Christ is God. Now, this, is, this here, under authority, 
It doesn't mean inferior. I want you to know that. It doesn't mean unequal. It doesn't mean that. It means submitted to the will of God. Under authority means submitted to God's will. It doesn't mean inferior. It doesn't mean unequal because submission, what it does, it, it, submission to God allows you, allows you to fulfill your purpose and to glorify God. Submission allows you to fulfill your purpose and to glorify God. Now you're going to see that there is equality actually in these relationships, but there's different roles when it comes to authority. There's equality, but there's different roles when it comes to authority. And let's study this. Now, we're going to look at the relationship between Christ, the Son, and the Father first to understand the equality there, but also understand the different roles and authority between the Son and the Father. He says this about the Son and the Father and the head or the authority of Christ as God. Now, Christ is fully submitted to the Father in love. Christ is fully submitted to the Father in love. But understand this, Christ is equal to the Father in deity. When it comes to the Trinity, did you know that, that Christ and, and the Father and the Trinity, they are all one, they're equal in character, they're equal in communion, they're equal in fellowship, but they have different roles in authority. Now Jesus himself said in John 10 verse 30, I and my Father are one, we're equal. I and my Father are one, John 10, 30. Then in John 13, 16, 32, he says this, And yet I am not alone because my Father is with me. He's signifying oneness. Him and the Father are equal. Him and the Father are one. Now in John 14, 28, look what he says. Now Jesus says, I'm going to the Father and my Father is here greater than I am. What is he saying here? We were equal, we're one, but I'm submitted. He's greater than I am. What is this teaching us? That Christ is equal with God in character, in deity, in the Trinity. However, Jesus could not fulfill, he could not fulfill the purpose and the need of salvation. Jesus could have never fulfilled the purpose and the need of our salvation without submission. If Jesus had never submitted himself to God's purpose and plan, we would still be lost. Jesus had to submit himself to the Father. They had one fellowship, one purpose, one service, yet he submitted himself for the purpose of redemption on the cross. Think about that. Jesus was submitted on the cross. Jesus claimed equality, but he offered submission. He claimed equality. Him and the Father, they're equal but he offered submission. The Father and the Son possess different roles. What do we learn already here between this relationship? That submission allows you to fulfill God's will for, for your life. Submission allows you to fulfill God's will for your life. What is God's will for your life? That you would submit it to Him. Submission allows you to fulfill God's will for your life. And let's look at that other relationship. And the head of every man is Christ. Now, man is called to submit himself to Christ by the cross, by the love that he's giving us. But what, how is there, where is there equality in that? Well, since man was created in the image of God. And it said from the beginning of time that, that God created now man in his own image. He created him as a child of God. For equal fellowship, he created him. For perfect unity, he created him. For oneness in communion. For oneness in character, he created us, man, right? That's what it says in Genesis. 
But he also created us for voluntary submission for the purpose and the glory of God. He created us so that we can be just like him in fellowship and communion. And one is he created us to be that way. But he also created us to submit under him. Now understand this. That our act of rebellion, our sin. In that act of rebellion, that sin, our identity was lost. And our purpose was lost. Our purpose was spoiled. But Jesus recovers it by God's grace. Did you know that? When we sin in the Garden of Eden, our identity and our purpose was lost. All that was lost. Jesus went and recovered it by God's grace. At the cross, Jesus restored and recovered God's plan for us of perfect unity and fellowship. That's what He's teaching us. He wanted us equal, perfect unity and oneness and intimacy, but we spoiled that plan. And Jesus went and recovered and redeemed that plan for us. Right? That's what He did for us when He went to the cross. So therefore, we ought to submit to Him. Now, this other relationship here says, the women ought to be submitted to man through love. Now, women and men are both equal in the eyes of God. They are, just like the Father, the Son, just like the man and Christ in fellowship, right? That we ought to have that fellowship, perfect unity. But now it talks about the, the women submitted to man. Now, God did not take women from man's head, <laughs> So that, that she would compete and dominate with him and always challenge every decision that he's going to make. That is not why God created women for. He didn't create women for every time that your husband or the male leadership in the church or wherever it would be are making decisions that women would challenge every single time. He didn't create her from the head. But she, he didn't also create women from Adam's feet so that man would trample all over her and take advantage of her and say, you do what I say, I'm the man. He did not create her and take, take her away from his feet. Where did he take her from? He took her from man's side so that she would be his companion, his equal comparable. She created him from his side so that they can live side by side to be his companion, to be his comfort, to be his love, right? And what is the side, the rib that, that the Lord took the women from? It's the closest place to a man's stomach. No, the closest place to a man's heart. <laughs> to a man's heart. And that's exactly why he took her from there. So that he would love her. So that he would now groom her in that love. And that she would be his companion now. But God's will is that she would be submitted to her husband. Now, authority and submission in all these three relationships, understand this, men and women. Authority in these three relationships only exist, and they're only born in love. You cannot have authority and submission without love. You cannot have, give birth to that authority and submission in your house without love. You see, the father it, it has the son submitted because of love. And, and we are submitted to Christ because of the cross, because He loved us. And therefore, our wives should be submitted to us because we love them. Submission and authority exist, are maintained, and are born in love. And it's very difficult, I'll tell you, men, for a woman to submit, especially to a Christian man. It is very difficult for a woman to submit, especially to a Christian man, who himself is not submitted to God first. If the, this man is not submitted to God first, then how do you expect your wife to be submitted to you? I think that so many times men try to lead outside of God's will and then wonder why their wives are not submitted to them. 
You want to know one of the best ways to demonstrate that you're submitted to God, man? One of the best ways of you demonstrating that you are submitted to God, but you demonstrating I'm fully submitted to God is by loving your wife. You love your wife. You're saying I'm submitted to God because I love my wife. That is the best way of demonstrating submission. Because authority in your house, it's not demanded. It's deserved. Authority in your house is not demanded. It's deserved. You know, I, I, what happens if you go at your house as a man and you say, you know what, you do what I say. I'm the man of the house. You do what I say. I'm putting my foot down. How effective is that? It's not effective. I dare you to try it. No, don't try it, please. It's going to cause you a lot of problems. That's not effective. <laughs> if you say, you know, I'm the man of the house. You do what I say. No. In Ephesians 5.22, what does the Bible tell us? Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. If you're not submitting to your husband, you're not submitting to the Lord indirectly, right? Husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and He gave Himself for her. What is it saying here? That Christ gave Himself for the church so that the church can submit now to the wife. And, and sometimes we wonder as husbands, you, you'll be walking around frustrated in your home because you don't get respect around here. How is it that I can get respect at work and between my friends, everywhere I go, I get respect, but in my house? That's the constant frustration. Are you leading the way Christ would lead? Are you leading with love? You can't expect no you know, respect or authority or submission from your wife if you're not leading with love. You see, the rule of the family is that just as Christ voluntarily submitted himself to the Father, so the husband must submit himself to Christ. And as the woman is to be the man's companion, she is to submit to an authority which is exercised in love. The woman will only submit to an authority that is exercised in love as expressed in the cross. When you think about authority, when you think about submission, don't think about equality. Think about the cross. <laughs> you know, a lot of times we think submission and we are all on Automatically, we think equality. Next time you hear submission, think about the cross. Because that's how God and Jesus won our submission over. He said, this is how I'm going to win your submission over. By the most ultimate act of love. You want to win the submission over in your house? Then demonstrate the ultimate act of love, of humility, and of service. Think about the cross. God's way of winning our submission over was at the cross. Was with the ultimate act of love. Was with humility and service. You want your, your wife to respond to you in submission? Humility and service on your part. She'll respect the authority and submission on her part. Think about the cross. And if a man cannot exercise authority like this, then he better remain unmarried. Then he better remain unmarried. And if a woman cannot submit to a love like this, then she better remain unmarried. This is the reason why a lot of times we become frustrated in our homes because sometimes we try to lead as husbands or as men and exercise authority outside of God's will without being submitted to God. And you cannot be fulfilled the marital purpose in your life if you're not fully, both husband and wife, submitted fully to God. You see, man, are you submitted to God today? If you're submitted to God, if you're not submitted to God, don't expect your wives to be submitted to you. And women, learn to submit to your husband 
as you're submitting unto the Lord. Right? This is the leadership roles that God has given us. Now let's read verse 4. Every man are praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. So he's saying every man that is praying now, and, he, and he's praying and he's covering now his, his head, he dishonors now that or he who is his head. He re, we read it in verse 3. I want you to know that, verse 4, I'm sorry. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. Now, he's not saying if you cover your head, you're dishonoring your head, your physical head. No, you're dishonoring your headship, your authority. That's, that is God. That is Christ. When, now, when men here in this culture and women in this culture, specifically women, in this culture, the culture of Corinth, they would wear these head coverings. And sometimes you see it even happening today that they go into church and the women wear these head coverings. Now, in that culture, a head covering would mean that you were under authority. Would it mean that you were under the protection of someone else? That's what it meant in that culture. A head covering doesn't mean that in our culture. It doesn't mean that you're submitted in our culture. It doesn't mean that you're respecting God if you're wearing a head covering. It doesn't mean that. If you come in with a head covering, all everyone is going to think is you're having a bad hair day. It doesn't mean under submission in our culture. So you don't have to wear that, he's saying. And it says here, when men are wearing that head covering that means submission, that means that the women that were designed for women to betray that, you're dishonoring now God. Why are you dishonoring God when you're wearing that, men? Why are you dishonoring God? He's saying here, you're dishonoring God because you're technically saying publicly, I am not an authority when God has called you to leadership and responsibility. So when you come in and you try to remove yourself from the place of authority and, and, and leadership in your home and in the church, men, you're saying and you're dishonoring Christ because men, He designed you to lead. And when you come in wanting to lead or wanting to clean your hands from responsibility and leadership publicly and privately in the home and in the church, you're dishonoring Christ. And that's why men today, you have to take the mantle of leadership seriously. God has created you to lead the home and lead the church. He's created you to do that. Now verse 5. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Who's her head? Her head is the man. For that is the one and the same as if her head was shaved. <laughs> what does he mean here now? I want you to understand there's, there's cultural points here. And he, he says here, every woman that comes with no covering, she's basically saying a statement that I don't care what my husband says. <laughs> I don't care the leadership that we have at church. You know, I don't care about the, the male leadership instituted by the Lord. I'm not going to wear that. I'm not going to demonstrate that I'm under submission. He's saying it is the same as if she were shaved. You know who was shaved in that time in Corinth? It was the women that were in sin, that were living in, in prostitution, that were living in homosexuality. And what he's saying here, what we're learning here in, very, in this verse, verse 5 here, what he's teaching us here in this verse, verse 5, he's saying, if you are rebelling against some, being submitted under authority, it is just as bad as you're identifying yourself with the shame of the world. Because you don't want to submit with the male leadership that God has ordained. For if a woman is not covered, verse 6, let her also be shorn. And if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. Why is it that you want to identify with the world, with rebellion, when you don't want to submit under the male or the man that God has put in your life? 
She might as well be shaved. That was the punishment for the adulteress at that time. And that was the, the marks now of the sinful lifestyle of rebellion. And he's saying, if you're going to rebel and not wear that, you might as well identify with complete shame, he's saying here. If you're refusing the authority and you want to identify with the women of the world. Now the order and the manner of creation, we're going to see here, so that you know that this is more than just a cultural thing. A lot of times we see, you know, that was back in the day, the whole, you know, men lead and, and the women support. You know, women have a, a beautiful part in leadership as well. They, they really do. But he's going to show us now eternal principles to back up the points that he's saying. Uh, eternal principles that transcend culture. Eternal principles that you can't say, well, that was just an old school, man. You're old school teaching that. No, he's going to show us these, these eternal principles of the clear authority now in the home and in the church that transcend culture and that transcend time. In verse 7 it says this, For a man indeed not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. He's saying, a man ought to not cover his head. What is he saying? Man, you ought to be men. Don't go be out there you know, wearing something that is for a woman or, or, or playing a role that's for the woman. Man, be a man in your house. Be a leader in the house. You're the glory, you're the image, you're the reflection of God. These are eternal principles here. He is the image of the glory of God. And the woman is the glory of man. What is he teaching us here? That man is, represents the authority of God here. And woman represents the authority of man here. And he's saying, therefore, women, you don't have, you know, man, you don't have to wear that, that head covering. You're called to lead. You're called to lead in, in this order that God created us for. He created us for this type of responsibility. Verse here, 9, what does it tell it? Verse 8, I'm sorry. For the man is not from woman, but woman is from man. Uh, that, that doesn't sound too correct in our eyes today. But he's talking about creation. What happened in creation? God took woman out of man. He did not take man out of woman. He's talking about eternal principles here. He's taking us back to creation. He's saying, the first man didn't come from a woman. The first woman came from a man. That is the order that God has established it. And, and, and listen to this here, what he says next in verse 9. No, was man created for woman, but woman for man. What is he saying? He's talking about the, the, the companionship. What did God say when he created Adam? Adam, it is not good that Adam is alone. I'm going to, to make what? Uh, a helper comparable to Adam. He's created that woman to come and, and, and be a helper to, to raise the arms up and for them to live a life side by side. Right? But now verse 10. What does it say? For this reason the woman ought to have a symbol of authority. Symbol of authority. What does that mean? Here? On her head because of the angels now. <laughs> so now, the symbol of authority at that time was a head covering. Doesn't mean that today again. But it also says because of the angels. Angel now is an eternal being. Now, he's not talking about a culture when he's talking about angels. He's talking about an eternal being. And he's saying angels are watching when we worship. And we ought to show respect and reverence in our worship to God. We ought to show respect and reverence on how we glorify God. Because the angels are submitted to God. And just like the angels are submitted to God, we, both men and women, ought to be submitted to God in order to glorify Him. You can't worship God and glorify Him if you're living outside of submission. You can't say, I'm glorifying God, but I don't want to submit to my husband. You can't, men, say, I'm glorifying God, but I'm not loving my wife. 
You can't say, I'm glorifying God, man, but I'm not submitted to Christ. That is not now glorifying God in your worship. And that's why it says, men are watching. And the angels are watching here, both men and women. You know what culture tells us? That, that men and women were created, that they, they, they were not created different. That's what culture tells us, that we weren't created different. But, but the Bible tells us that God created men and women specifically different for different specific roles. He created men and women specifically different for different specific roles. There are things that the women do so beautifully that the men would never be able to do, <laughs> right? Both in the church, in the house, in the world, in society, and culture. There is a beauty about the women that they can do that, that the men, even if we try, we just cannot do it. <laughs> God created women for that special purpose, and He created them in such manner for it. You know, now today, culture points to men who are more like women and women who are more like men, and they celebrate this. And even recently, you know, men want to see how they look like as women. <laughs> and women want to see how they look like as men. No, he's saying here, hey, stop doing that. God's called you to be a man. And be a man in your house, and be a man in society, and be a man in culture. And, and, and for ladies, God's called you to be a beautiful woman. So embrace that, that God's called you to be that woman. In your house, in culture, in the church, in society. You see, the failure for men to lead in their homes and in the church and lead the way Jesus would has been the, the number one reason why the rejection of, of even male leadership and authority, and which is in, in, inexcusable, because we fail to lead the way we're supposed to lead, right? We fail to lead the way we're supposed to lead. This is the biblical worldview of when it comes to being a church, a family, a person led by the Word of God. Led by the Word of God, right? Let's read verse 11 here. Now, when it talks about, nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman here. I love this here. Neither is man independent of here, woman, nor woman is independent of man in the Lord. In the Lord. What does this culture tell us? Oh, man, you, be, you pride yourself in independence. You're so independent. God didn't create you to be independent if you're married. In the Lord, you're created to be codependent of one another. You see, man is not dependent of the woman, or the woman is independent of the man. In fact, they're better together. They're better together. And what is it going to teach us? For, the, for as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. Yes, the first woman came from man. But what happened after that? Every other man came from a woman. <laughs> So we ought to know that we are dependent, that they're beautiful, the women. And that we ought to respect them. We ought to love them. We would not be here without them. They deserve that respect as well. Yes, the, men, the women came from men, the first initial order. God wanted to teach us order. God wanted to teach us authority. God wanted to teach us His chain of command. But after that, every other man came from women. We ought to respect women that way. We have to say that we're not independent from them, that we need the women to be the women that God called them to be, right? And, and man must lead the way that God called them to lead, or else he's leading outside of God's will. Now verse 13, judge among yourselves, is it a prophet for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Is it, is it okay, right, for her to pray or to worship God with her head uncovered? Is it, is it okay for her to serve outside of being submitted to God's chain of command? No, it's not okay. 
But it's also not okay for men to lead outside of God's will either. Men and women, we have to lead in, under the chain of command that God has called us to lead in, right? We have to lead the way God has told us to be in. Now it says, does, does even nature itself teach you that if man has long hair, it's dishonor to him? Now he's talking now a little bit more of a cultural point. You know, traditionally, for most men, we've had even shorter hair, he's saying here, and women have longer hair. What, is he, what does he want to do here now with the, the whole hair thing here in the next three verses? He wants to teach women, embrace you being woman. Embrace that feminine piece of who you are. And men, embrace your masculinity. You're a man and God called you to be a man and be a man. That's what he's saying. Man, man up. <laughs> in, the, in that verse, verse 13, he's saying, you know what, man, you ought to man up. Don't be over there with your little head covering, trying to excuse yourself from, lead, you know, from the leadership responsibility. Oh, I want nothing to do with it. You know what? I'll let my wife take the leadership. I'll let my wife provide. I'll let my wife be the leader of the household. That's not what God called you to do. Man, man up and provide for your home. It's not your wife's responsibility. It's yours. Right? That's what he's saying here. But if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her. It's so beautiful to her. See, that's why she, God gave her that, 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 that way of being. Her, her, her hair is given to her for a covering. What is it saying, verse 15? God has given her such a beautiful feminine personality and looked to her. It's her glory, her joy, it's her pride. Women, be who God called you to be. Because women, God called you to be so beautiful and He wants you to embrace that. And men, God called you with the responsibility to lead. And you must step into that role, Right? And verse 16, but if anyone seems to be contentious, anybody want to argue about this, he's saying? Does anybody have a problem with this? He's saying, we have no such custom and no do the churches of God. He said, if anybody wants to argue, understand that this is the custom. This is what God has given us, right? That we and, and no other churches are teaching any other doctrine. They have adopted this doctrine according to God's truth. Now, how do we end today off of this though? The submission of God allows you to fulfill your purpose. It starts with submission to God. And we want to be fully submitted. Before the mad to anything else, we want to be fully submitted to God. What happens when you're fully submitted to God? You, under, you start to live in His will for your life. When you're fully submitted, you start to live in God's will for your life. When you're not submitted to God, you're not living in His will for your life. If I'm submitted to God, that means that I'm living in His will for my life. Ladies, if you're submitted to God, that means that you're living in His will for your life. Right? And number two, you know what it does when you're submitted to God? You're living for the glory of God, man and woman. When men submit to God, they're, li they're saying, I'm living in God's will and I'm living for the glory of God. When women submit to God, they're saying, I'm living in God's will and I'm living for the glory of God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Your work. <coughs> We thank you because this is so awesome as you teach us this. And we ask, sir, that we would step in and that men would be men. That men would not try to excuse themselves from the manhood that you've called them to be. Manhood is so important in the home and in the church, in our culture. That we would not water that down, the manhood of what it means to be a man of God. What it means to be men and leaders in our homes, providers of our homes. That's what you've called us to do. We pray that you would teach us to love our wives the way you loved the church and you gave yourself 
that we would only cultivate and give birth to authority and submission with acts of ultimate love like the cross. And also for the ladies. God, we thank you for the women that you created them so distinctively beautiful. A role that no one else could fill in. Women to be leaders in their homes as well. Mothers. That that motherhood, the womanhood, Lord, would never be taken away as women of God, Lord. That as they submit to you, Lord, they would be in your will for their life. And that they would glorify you. I thank you so much, Lord, for all you've done. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would let us understand that this is, this is your chain of authority. And Lord, that we would love the way you love and we would submit to you. Because submission and obedience is the best form of worship. We pray this all in Jesus' name and together we said, Amen. Amen.